your love has a high price to pay. Some put on a suit, but it ran the other way. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my Hall of Fame co-host and star of this show, Jim Cott. And this is Cott's Corner, episode 192 for the network. Um, before I bring Jim on here, I just want to give a quick note to our audience. We're up over 18,300 subscribers as of this morning. Uh, so our audience is, keeps, not only is our current audience active, but they keep bringing in new people to us, which I love. Make sure you download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. The rate review is important. It battles the podcast analytic world, much like we do in baseball. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher is where you can find us. And hit us up on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I get back to one guest a day on Facebook, but answer everybody else privately. 72 countries, grassroots MLB front offices. We're just trying to build better baseball IQs out there. And as I remind our listenership, which they know already, in fact, they remind me to make sure we continue to do this, but just prepare to embrace some of the uncomfortable truths about baseball, sometimes life, because this program, like none, like all of our others, just have no time for any of the comfortable lies that are being pushed out there. So we're going to hit you straight between the eyes today. And Jim, welcome back. I know you had a great trip up to Cooperstown again, and we're anxious to hear about uh, not just the trip and what happened, but all the different people you met up there and the things you took away. Yeah, Dave, I, th- I think first I wanted just a little reflection on yesterday, Memorial Day. I saw that, you know, uh, piece that Alejandro Villanueva did on uh, ESPN about, you know, he's here's this big six foot nine inch guy that uh, played in the NFL. And he, he talked about Memorial Day from the viewpoint of a soldier and one of the uh, young friends that uh, was killed in battle and, you know, kind of made us think about uh, what Memorial Day is all about. And then that, you know, that kind of segued into my thinking about watching the uh, documentary, It Ain't Over Till It's Over. Uh, the life story of Yogi Berra. So, uh, you know, I've become friends with Lindsay Berra, who really was the motivating force behind uh, behind doing this documentary, actually a movie. And uh, what I didn't realize about Yogi is he was in the lead boat at the invasion of Normandy. I knew he served in the armed forces. And typical Yogi, when they interviewed him and said, uh, you know, what did you you know, what was going through your mind when you get, he said, well, I looked around, I thought it was the 4th of July because it's all the fireworks, you know, so that is such a typical response from Yogi, but uh, not only was uh, a great ball player, but uh, as many others in his era served in the armed forces. uh, The reason Lindsay wanted to make this movie is years ago, and you'll remember it, they had the coming out of the four greatest living ball players. Aaron Mays, Bench, and Koufax. And so Lindsay said, what about my grandpa? Well, when you put Yogi's career line against those other four, with all due respect to him, you cannot omit him as one of the greatest ball players of all time. You know, three-time MVP, 10 World Series rings, hit 28 home runs one year and struck out 12 times. <laughs> Whitey Ford never shook him off. So, uh, you know, that was that was a great Memorial Day uh, memory to, to see the uh, the movie about Yogi and then uh, to see that great spot by Alejandro Villanueva yesterday. So yeah. that was a good way to reflect on Memorial Day. I, we had Lindsay on the show earlier before the right before they put the first documentary. I think it was in Chicago. They did it first. 
And we, you know, we chatted about it. Yogi Berra, and I agree with you, not just when he was, when he was alive, one of the greatest living ball players at the time, but very often overlooked, even when you talk about the greatest catchers of all time, um, as far as going one or two, how, how much do you think that is attributed to the, you know, his, his character? He was, a, he was a, he was a, he was a cut up. He was the, the yogiisms. It's Yeah, that's, that, that's exactly. And that was the kind of the theme of the movie that, you know, yogis known for yogiisms. And so sometimes you forget that this little five foot eight inch guy that, look like a yogi as Bobby Hoffman gave him that nickname back when he was a kid. But, uh, you know, three MVPs and we, we, there was some black and white footage, obviously of him getting hits and what he had, uh, was fast hands and great hand eye coordination. And that's why he didn't care where the ball, I, I sit in the, uh, I was one of the panel, uh, you know, to kind of reflect and answer questions on the movie because I, I faced Yogi and I faced his son, Dale. Uh, Dale actually hit me better than Yogi did. But uh, I said, you know, when you look at those swings, uh, if you mentioned launch angle to Yogi, he'd think you were shooting something up to the moon. You know, he just had that level swing. Most left-hand hitters are low ball hitters. They hold the bat in a vertical position. Uh, Yogi could hit it anywhere you threw it. He had fast hands inside, and yet he had great, uh, reactions to also take the outside pitch to the other, you know, the other way. So it was nice for people to really see his baseball skills uh, and not just his yogiisms. Yeah. High average, uh, good, very good power. Didn't strike out a lot, and you know the the uh, the number of MVPs and championships speak for themselves. I like the story. We got Lindsay to tell the story about how he got nicknamed Yogi because yeah, he thought it was the bear. And uh, right. <laughs> they actually actually made the bear after him, which they, I don't think they were too happy with the family, but uh, he sat as like a, like he was a Yogi, like he did yoga when he was, instead of sitting on the bench when he was a little kid. So um, interesting, interesting story. We well, got to intermingle with, with lots of colleagues there. Um, sh- share some of that with our audience, just that, cause that, you know, you're, when you're playing for all those years, you, you know each other as competitors. You get to, you yeah, know. you know that's that's really what's been one of the uh, one of the great things uh, about being blessed with saying you're in the Hall of Fame. As you know, I knew Fergie as a pitcher, and a competitor, and Lee Smith and Raleigh, and of course Bert and Jack Morris. I, I know better because Bert, I was kind of sort of one of his mentors when he came up. Uh, and now I'm getting to know them as people. They showed a documentary the night after Yogi's on Fergie, and it's called Grief and Glory. Uh, and Fergie's been through a lot in his life with, uh, you know, his wife being killed in a, a single car accident. And then uh, he got remarried and his wife suffered from depression. She took her own life as well as one of his uh, small children. And I mean, Fergie is just solid as a rock. But just to get to, get to know him as a person and respect uh not only what a great dominant pitcher he was, but to see, uh, uh, you know, what a strong insides he has to deal with the things that he's been dealt with in life. Yeah, I think th- those are things that people forget also when they watch the game, that you're watching human beings yeah. that have wives and children and same struggles we all have out there. Um, who, who are a couple others that you, you had Interesting. Well, the, the more recently retired players, and I was so impressed with uh, not only the condition they're still in. I mean, like James Loney, what a terrific athlete. 
And James, for those that didn't follow his career, he was drafted by the Dodgers. He played mostly first. He played first base. But he said, you know, I'd like to pitch an inning today. He said, I was drafted as a pitcher. They didn't know for sure if I'd be a pitcher or position player. Well, I didn't have any many any extra men. Uh, so Jeremy Guthrie started the game, and I'll, I'll get into my relationship with him in a, in a couple minutes. But I said, well, James, I got to get all these pitchers in, so I'll let you face one hitter. Well, as it turns out, the one hitter he faced was Chris Young, who we, they were on the same travel ball team growing up in Texas. Oh, wow. So now, after James popped Chris out, I come out and I said, well, now uh, Guthrie was playing uh, second base for that inning. Jeremy Guthrie was. So James said, well, I want to play shortstop. So we moved the infielder out and he's playing shortstop with his first baseman's glove. And I, w- I hope they have the video of it. I mean, he made an unbelievable diving stop and turned it into a double play and then he made another pick then he wins the home run derby then his team wins the golf outing so (laughs) i said james they ought to put you in the hall of fame right now but uh you know and jeremy uh who pitched for 13 years in the big leagues uh didn't pitch on a lot of good teams but but very bright young man he's in his uh, i think he's 44 now went to stanford and his goal is to go around the country, you know, these guys have made enough money now that as young men, they pretty much do what they want to. So he's been to Bulgaria, he's been to Spain, and I talked to him about going to New Zealand, and uh, he is really enthused about that. But uh, we sat along with Jeff Cirillo, who was a former infielder with the Brewers, and we started talking pitching and hitting, and I said, you know, the guys today, they, they never sit down with me and talk about this stuff. We're pretty much irrelevant, but you know, Jeff made a good point when listening to Jeremy about pitching. Uh, Jeremy, I believe, was drafted by Cleveland. Then when he got to Baltimore, Leo Mazzoni was his pitching coach. And Leo was a disciple of my favorite pitching coach, Johnny Sane. So Leo said, well, tell me about, uh, you know, your pitches. What do you got? And uh, after a brief discussion, Leo said, well, let's go out and, uh, you know, get warmed up. And so he had the catcher sit like knee high outside corner. And he said, just see if you see what you can do. Throw me a, a fastball there, knee high outside. Boom, Jeremy right on target. He said, throw me another. So he threw four in a row. Leo said, you're going to pitch in the big leagues for a while. He said, that's the most important pitch you could throw right there, low and away. And then Jeff Cirillo chimed in and said, you know, as a hitter, they're all about these elevated fastballs right now, but the toughest pitch for me was that low and away because you had to reach for it. I said, sure, it, it, we pitch guys low and away because their arms are on their shoulders, not on their knees. And it's, you know, it's a tough pitch to reach. So, you know, we really got a good uh, dialogue going about, uh, and he asked me about stuff I learned from Warren Spahn because I had brought that up and, uh, you know, and learned to control your fastball. So, you know, uh, Brian Dozier was there from the Twins. I've known Brian for a while. Uh, Pokey Reese, who was the MVP of the game. Uh, Jay, uh, um, Josh Reddick, who's only been retired a couple of years, he was there. So it was a lot of guys that looked like they could still play. You know, But uh, it was really fun because I was impressed with the uh, – with the character of all of them and the respect they have for the game. Uh, it was just a wonderful weekend experience. Well, the, the part that kind of took me back is that you were sitting with guys that I guess they're not too far removed and they were actually asking you questions. And 
their livelihood no longer depend upon it, but they were that inquisitive about baseball and what you had to bring to the table. Um, what's the difference between, I mean, that's not, that's not a generation that's too far removed from playing. What's the difference between them and, you know, as you say, you walk into the clubhouse and, you know, here you are a hall of fame pitcher, a hall of fame broadcaster. You've got a wealth of knowledge you could share just by accident. Um, what's the difference between those two generations? Why aren't, why does one just pin you down and want to know everything and the other in your mind, just not interested? I think it's been a gradual takeover of, uh, the science of the game, trying to think of that, uh, line of demarcation. Cause I asked Jeremy, I said, now how much, uh, how much of the statistical stuff did you get involved in? You know, and he's, I think his last year was 2017. He came up back in 2004, but it just gradually evolved. And I don't know if we can pinpoint one spot, but it's, it's not only the, the guys up there with all the numbers, but now teams are hiring coaches that uh, have no big league experience. They have a lot of good knowledge mechanically, but they don't, you know, if they sat in on a conversation that Jeff and Jeremy and I had, they, they would have no way to relate to it because they don't understand that because they never played. And so it's annoyed, like Randy Johnson was quite annoyed when he went to Diamondback camp and he thought, well, you know, I'm going to get a chance to work with the pitchers. Well, no, you, you come and shake hands and meet and greet, but we got our own way of doing things. So I think all of us in that era have found out that we are now pretty much irrelevant in terms of sitting down like I did with, with Jeff and with, with Jeremy and, and uh, talking baseball. Those That's just out the window because you have to get out your computer and you wrap Soto and check the spin rate and the launch angle. And uh, it's just evolved into that, I think, over, over the years. I would say a starting point seems to be somewhere around 2010. That's that's when the games peaked at being their longest and guys were, you know, stepping out of the box and stepping off the mound and going through all their cues from their sports psychologist. And that's where they acquired knowledge, but uh, they haven't acquired the wisdom that it takes to actually play the game. Yep. I, I think you're, you hit it right on the head. I, I say that about baseball at the time. It's drowning in information and starving for wisdom right yeah. now. They don't know what to do with all of it. You, you had uh, you managed against uh, a, a friend, a colleague, a former teammate, Burt Blylevin. Um, you guys had to would you had to walk out the home plate and exchange lineups like a traditional game? Did you guys interchange there or share any? Oh yeah, when when they announced all the lineups and Burt was ready to walk back to the dugout, I called him over to home plate, and we stood there nose to nose, and I said, "Who would have thought?" When I saw you win your first game at age 19 in 1950, when I'd heard about this young Dutch kid with a big curveball, that here 53 years later, we'd be standing at home plate in Cooperstown, both members of the Hall of Fame. So uh, that, that was a, a neat experience to reflect on that. But uh, yeah, it was, it was good seeing him, Jack. Jack and you know, and Jack Morris, who's one of the great pitchers of his era, uh, what's impressive to me is he still has such respect for Fergie and Lee Smith and myself that he said, you know, you guys are the ones that paved the way for us. So, you know, it's nice to see that in retired players that, and I don't blame the players of today. I blame baseball. Uh, I had my nephew, his two sons and three grandsons there. 
And they spent seven hours over two days in the Hall of Fame. And there's an introductory video of 17 minutes. And my nephew is saying, I mean, it is so inspiring. And I have said that baseball ownership or general managers should make a DVD of that and kind of a tour of the Hall of Fame and make it required for all their players in spring training to watch and listen to uh, minor leaguers and major leaguers. So they get a little feel like Josh Willingham was there. Well, he'd never been to the Hall of Fame. And he said, I, I wanted to come and see my bat because uh, if you remember record-wise, he hit two grand slams in one game. So they have his bat there in uh, in Cooperstown that, that he used for that. So, you know, some of the former players that were back there for the first time, you know, were really impressed with what this uh, what this game is all about and, and how it started and who was responsible for, at one time, making it America's pastime. I honestly think we can't say that anymore, but it's still a very popular game. Yeah, that, that that's concerning to me that, you know, men like yourself who built the game are, you know, so turned off by it now. And I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it should be required uh, listening, watching, because that sense of reverence is lost, not just in baseball, but in our world today. So I'm with you on that. So on that same note now, how was the representation there from Park Avenue? Uh, they did, uh, they had, uh, I saw some friends from the MLB network that were doing some audio and video, but, uh, I, I did not see any, uh, any representatives that I, I thought that maybe they should be, you know, and, and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I think what we've come to understand is that, you know, Rob's mission, Rob Manfred is, is obviously, uh, you know, revenue producing. They got a lot of new initiatives. And sometimes without uh, the old school baseball people around, uh, you know, the, the activities that involve us former players uh, kind of gets maybe ignored. And, uh, and that's where uh, they could really hear and hear a lot of baseball stories and learn a lot about uh, the game that I think would be important to them. It's impossible to be at the Hall of Fame and be around, you know, Again, you have Hall of Famers there and even even guys who played in the bigs. I mean, that's, that's such a great feat where you can't fall in love with the game. Um, I think that should be required attendance to next year for all of Park yeah, Avenue. Yeah. Get down there and see what it's about and let let them throw to a batter and see what it's like. That would be uh, – I bet you would be life-changing for them. We, yeah. You mentioned some you know, other uh, – Speaking again about today's game uh, and maybe what's missing is I, I saw an interesting quote today from Brandon Hyde, the manager of the Orioles. So the tribe, and they'll always be the tribe to me, Cleveland, because the tribe, there's nothing offensive about it. A tribe is a group of like-minded people. And that can be your family, that can be your high school graduating class, and it could be your baseball team. So the tribe has this young lefty named Logan Allen. And uh, he struck out more guys in his first few starts than I think you have to go all the way back to the great Herb Score, who was rookie of the year for Cleveland in the 50s. So Brandon Hyde said, I'd seen video of him and I knew he had good stuff. But he said, all of a sudden, uh, what I found out watching him in person, he was sneaky fast. His fastball had a little more life on it than what the radar gun showed, and he worked at a fast tempo, he threw strikes, and he stayed ahead of the hitters. Wow, what a concept. 
you know, and yeah. and and that's the that's the stuff that's missing is enough people involved in the game, particularly with the pitching, don't understand the difference between pitching and throwing. I watched a little replays yesterday, and, and I hope it doesn't get any worse because I'm trying to think. I want to say Kellner, the pitcher for the Rockies, who was hit in the head, got a concussion with yes. a line drive hit back at him. And I saw some replays from the center field camera yesterday of home runs where the pitcher is falling so far off to the right side because he's thrown the ball as hard as he can and he's not in position to field it. And if one of those line drives comes back through the mound instead of going over the wall, uh, we're going to see more and more serious injuries. And uh, it's the difference between pitching and throwing. And by by motivating young kids to throw as hard as they can and risking injury, uh, we have turned pitching into a science of throwing instead of the art of pitching. Change speeds, control, uh, that still works. I, I know I had a very res well-respected media member several years ago saying, well, the two-seam sinking fastball is dead. It's all about elevating your fastball. Well, he's wrong. Uh, I'm going to see Rick Porcello this weekend at a Little League benefit right here in Vermont. And Rick was one of the great sinker ball pitchers when he came up at 19. His ground ball rate was unbelievable. And all of a sudden, this elevated fastball craze came in, and he ends up leading the league in home runs, and he has a bad year. So, you know, we got to convince somewhere along the line, whether it starts with college coaches or high school coaches, convince that we have to teach kids how to pitch and not throw as hard as they can. Yeah. They, you know, we, and it kind of goes back to how, and I knew you were at the Hall of Fame, but I only saw one social media post on it on Facebook. It was actually you and Bert at home plate. They showed the back end. I said, that's right, Jim, Jim's out there and was searching all over for it. But the, the, kind of on that same note, people right now, when they're looking to put their young child into, you know, let's pitching, they don't go, they, they, they look more at influence than excellence. And influence in today's world is how many social media followers does somebody have, which is ridiculous to do. And a great point you're making, that's just why we do our network here in our shows, is the great point you're making is that let's just think, let's, let's take the fact that it's better baseball out of it. And if you really just want to preserve your child, the way they're teaching these kids how to throw arm injuries, and as you're pointing out, they're not in an athletic position when they finish and not just field for themselves, but to really defend themselves um, yeah. is what you're saying. So um, did you get, did, when you got a chance to talk to some of these guys, you mentioned Chris Young now. Is that the same Chris Young that's in the front office or wasn't the No, this is Chris Young that's on the MLB network, played for the oh. Diamondbacks. Okay, different one. Yeah, yeah. Re got a recently retired, had a, had a nice playing career. Uh, uh, yeah, right along, right along those lines you're, you're talking about, we're talking about pitching and throwing. So Jeremy Guthrie was asking me, you know, about what I learned from different coaches and, and the name Calvin Coolidge McClish. Calvin Coolidge Julius Caesar Tecumseh McClish. <laughs> he was he was part Native American. And uh, Fergie Jenkins had mentioned how much he learned from Cal McClish. And I said, yeah, Cal is the guy that I first heard the expression, the fastball is the only four pitch, only pitch you can throw to all four quadrants of the strike zone. Low and away, low and in, up and away, up and in. 
So I said, yes, I had this pitcher in uh, Cincinnati that I coached, Andy McGaffigan, and he had great stuff, and but his, his uh, record didn't reflect uh, how good a stuff he had. So I asked him how many pitches he had. He has four pitches. Well, how many can you get over when it's three and one, et cetera? So the next day with Bruce Kim, our uh, uh, catching coach and bullpen coach, uh, I said, let's go down the bullpen and uh, you get ready as if you're going to start a game. So now I have Bruce sit right in front of the, right behind home plate, right be, yeah, in the middle. I said, throw me 10 fastballs. I think I probably told you this story before. Uh, I said, throw me 10 fastballs and uh, see how many you get in the strike zone. I don't care where they are. Well, he only threw four. I said, well, so far, you're just, you're a one-pitch pitcher. I said, until you can command your fastball, you can get like, say, eight or nine out of 10 anywhere in the strike zone. Then you start cutting up the strike zone in half. See how many out of 10 you can get to the outer half. See how many out of 10 you can get to the inner half. And then into quarters, because as I found out from talking to pitchers of all eras, when they have a good game and the media member says, well, you know, tell me about your game today. What'd you have going? I had great command of my fastball. And that's still the most important. I think you could talk to pitchers of any age, uh, including Nolan Ryan. When, when uh, you know, Nolan Ryan didn't get his uh, curveball over and you could just sit on the fastball. And, you know, Nolan had power, but he wasn't the guy that you would expect to have pinpoint control. You know, he'd give up hits, too. So if you can command that fastball and then get what could be mediocre breaking pitches, secondary pitches over the plate when you're behind in the count, you can pitch no matter what the radar gun uh, says. But unfortunately, we're not training young pitchers to pitch like that. They College coaches, uh, you know, immediately they will say, well, you know, how hard does he throw? Well, you know, he's, he's at 89. Oh, well, I don't think he can pitch. And that's sad because there's a lot of talented young pitchers out there that could be big league pitchers if if we didn't drum, if I can't say we because I'm, I'm not on that same wavelength, if they didn't teach them to try to throw as hard as they could. The, the people that are beating that drum are not well I won't even be polite with it they're not educated enough on the game to even have an opinion of that element where you are doesn't somebody like you coming up you know sitting down like you did this weekend with a guy and saying command of your fastball is the most important thing does that not trump all this idiocy that's out there well it does but nobody you, nobody asks us about that uh, by say nobody, I mean from I'd say the GM to the coaches. I, I went to I went to spring training. Uh, I think Rick Anderson was the pitching coach then, and Ron Gardenhire was the manager. And they asked me to come in and talk to the pitchers, which I did that one time. Uh, I haven't had that opportunity since then, and I kind of my. Uh, kind of what I've told Dave St. Peter, the president of the Twins, I really don't want to go in the clubhouse anymore. I just, I feel like a stranger there. I, I love to outside the dugout, have a talk with Pablo Lopez. He's a wonderful young man and, and a talented pitcher, Joe Ryan, Byron Buxton. But as far as in the clubhouse, no, because uh, it's all science in there. Nobody, nobody sits around and talks the way you and I are or the way uh, Jeremy Guthrie and I were talking about sitting around a table out there in Cooperstown. 
Well, you've got an audience of 18,300 here. So all the people that are listening to this, as soon as your show's over, please repeat back to your children exactly what Jim said about commanding the fastball. We'll just start at one player at a time. That's all. We'll save the game. Yeah, I, I hope I hope that somewhere along the line that particularly with pitching, it can reverse it can revert back to pitching instead of just throwing and we can uh we can eliminate, you know, all these young kids that uh, I mean, you've heard the stories one after another. Well, you know, he he was throwing well in high school, and then, oops, all of a sudden, uh, you know, he tore something in his shoulder, his elbow, and he's on the operating table. And uh, we we got to stop that because there's a lot of wasted talent out there that if you just allow allow them and allow their body to mature and grow, uh, no better example of that than myself. Uh, I've mentioned that, that after my rookie year in Superior, Nebraska, two-month rookie league, uh, and I had grown a little. I was 5'10", graduated from high school. And then I sprouted up to about 6'3", but I was gangly. I hadn't filled out yet. And uh, this, the manager, Ray Baker, said, kid, if you come up with a fastball, you got a chance. And then the next year I went to like 6'3", 215 and on. And so in, in a couple of years' time, when I got to be, uh, I think, 19, 19 to 20, uh, now I, I had uh, – I had reached, I think, the peak is what I was going to be physically. And, and then I, I had a, a pretty decent fastball. But you, you can't force a, a young kid to do that when he's 15. It just doesn't make good sense. Well, they're, they're doing it even earlier than that right now. So when, when you sat next to Jeremy Guthrie, I'm, I know he asked you, share some of the additional questions he asked you, because I'm sure that was great for, I'm sure you enjoyed it, but I'm sure he was like a kid in a candy store. Well, I mentioned the, this, the example he mentioned when Leo Mazzoni told him, you know, low and away. And that's when, uh, I mean, Jeremy did not have a, uh, an overwhelmingly successful one-loss record, but he never pitched with a lot of good teams. He had, uh, I think, four or five innings of over 200, uh, years of over 200 innings and, and had good control. But I, I think our, our conversation shifted from pitching to, uh, to the fact that he's really interested and spreading the gospel of baseball internationally. That's his main goal. Because, you know, a lot of these guys that had what we would call average careers, but still in the big leagues, with the advent of free agency and now the additional, you know, uh, money coming in from television, a lot of them have made $40, $50 million in their career. So they're in a position at a young age where, you know, they could on their own go to travel, do what they want. And, uh, and I think Jeremy's one of those guys that wants to do it. Uh, I'm sure there's probably more than him. But we, we talked before we started the show about our friend Ryan Flynn, who's going to go to Australia. And uh, I said to Jeremy, there's, there's uh, countries out there that uh, would love to have you. I said, I spent two and a half months in New Zealand. And, I, and he said, I want to go there and really get involved. I don't want to just come in and make an appearance and leave. So. Uh, you know, there's countries out there that uh, you and I know about New Zealand. I think they'd love to have it. Oh, yeah, there's 72 countries that tune in us uh, daily. So those countries that are listening, reach out to us. Uh, we'll connect you with, with Jeremy or any other major leaguers, current, former, uh, that want to give back to the game in that capacity. What, just out of curiosity, what's Jeremy's platform? What's he, what's he most passionate about in regards to the game when he's going over to to uh, share his experiences with other countries? I think just physically one-on-one -on -one working with kids. 
you know, he's got 13 years of experience. He's had a lot of coaching and uh, Stanford grad. He's bright. Uh, so I think he just he just wants to coach and teach uh, young pitchers and, and kind of spread the uh, the news about baseball, that it's a fun game to play. And there's a lot of money to be made if you can do it at a high level. Uh, I think that's his mission. There is no no more complicated than that. And his his alignment with pitching is pretty similar to ours, you would say? Oh yeah, I I, I think we uh, you know we related right away. He he never talked you know miles per hour because he wasn't. Uh, uh, I don't think he'd be one of those what you call a flamethrower, you know, an overpowering guy. He was a pitcher, and uh, that's what it takes for I think to have coaches that have had that had the experience of being a pitcher, not just a thrower. And you mentioned James Loney earlier in the show, one beautiful left-handed swing. I remember him clearly with the Dodgers, that he he came up or he was drafted as a pitcher. Did anything – now, obviously, he's removed from the game, so you can't really judge him. But um, what kind of things did he ask you? What was his interaction with you? And how did he look on the mound with his one batter? Well, he looked natural. You know, he there. I said, you know, there were a few they, – they probably couldn't do it at the level that Shoei Otani's doing it, but – I remember when John Olerud came up, you know, great first baseman from out in Washington that also pitched, Paul O'Neill. Uh, there have been several uh, players that had the ability to do both. James, uh, I think James said they clocked him, you know, in high school at a at a better than average uh, fastball. Uh, but he just uh, he just opted to be a they or the Dodgers, I think, just thought that uh, they wanted him as a, a a position player instead of a pitcher. But he still, you know, as all position players do, they kind of in the back of their mind, I want to pitch someday. Oh, yeah. Just like, uh, just like a lot of us, I always said, I want to play, I want to play center field one day, you know, play the outfield. Uh, uh, because we were, you know, we grew up playing uh, all positions as kids in the sandlot. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I'm fascinated by it. And you, you mentioned you spent time with people often forget this. You got to spend time with other people's families. Um, what kind of encounters did you have with the families of, you know, Lee Smith, Raleigh fingers? Um, yeah, Lee, I've, Lee, I've gotten to know over the, over the years now, and he is such a fun loving guy, you know, uh, Lee Smith, for those that haven't followed closely was one of the great relievers and, uh, just uh, laid back from Louisiana. I think he's either Louisiana or Texas and uh, uh, his wife, uh, Diane. And uh, I've seen them now several times there. And he's just a fun guy to be around, you know, loves to go fishing, which means he can relate to uh, Margie. Margie wasn't with me, but I said, oh, yeah, you could you could talk fishing. But uh, he's fun to get to know as a person, as is uh, as was Fergie and uh, and Raleigh Fingers. Uh, but just, I think we had three or four dinners together while we were there. So you, you get some fun dialogue going and, you know, some of the old time baseball stories that quite, that keep surfacing. Uh, Fergie and I talked a lot about our, our old pitching coach. I didn't realize he had him, but he was Billy Martin's uh, go-to pitching coach. And that was Art Fowler. And uh, yeah, and we'd, we'd kid about how, you know, Billy would send Artie to the mound and he'd come running out there. He said, I don't know what what you're doing, but Billy's upset. And I said, well, Artie, just move your lips and make believe you're telling me something and then turn around and go back to the dugout. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of what we did. But, uh, you know, it was just general conversation that 
you would have if you were around a table with uh, with a group of your baseball friends. Yeah. And are the players, uh, the retired players, the former Hall of Famers, is it pretty much in unison where, I mean, just dis- disenfranchised with the direction of the game? I don't know that much. You know, we, we didn't have, other than at the field and in a golf tournament, they, uh, with their families there, they got a chance to, you know, they went on a tour of the Hall of Fame, just the, the former, there were 30 of them there. I think it got down to 27, a couple couldn't make it. So they went through the Hall of Fame with their with their families, but we didn't have a lot other than that time with Jeremy and uh, Jeff Cirillo at the golf tournament. We didn't have a lot of time to interact uh, with all of them. But uh, in general, they, they are all this, everybody loves the pitch clock, but in general, uh, even at that age, they're, they're kind of, uh, you know, disappointed with the fact that uh, the knowledge and experience that players had uh, isn't important anymore to the baseball people that run the game now. Uh, they'd rather, they'd rather look at a statistical sheet of, uh, of information of launch angle and radar gun and spin rate and things like that, that they would, uh, that they would sit down and just talk uh, good old school baseball. Yeah. And you got a chance to golf too. What was the, what was the format of the golf outing and how did you shoot? Well, we had four, uh, each, each foursome. We only had five groups or eight groups rather of fivesomes and the, uh, uh, the, the members that were donors, longtime donors of the Hall of Fame, I played with four gentlemen from Long Island, big Mets fans. And then uh, we had a, a baseball player, in some cases, two. All the young guys took over that, like Greg Garcia and James Loney and, and Jeremy that could all hit it, you know, 50 yards past us. But it was just a, a fun social time. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't anything serious golf, but it was a uh, it was a way I think all the uh, Jeremy in particular, I think he was really uh, enjoyed being around a lot of us that had played the game for a long time. And and I appreciated that. I appreciated the, the character of all of them. Yeah. I, know, I think switching, so. switching gears to just the game on the field. And I was talking with you and Ted Kubiak, uh, former player before we went on the air and then an instant, uh, an instance, in yesterday's game between the Tigers and the Rangers, uh, that again pointed out how frustrated I get if I watch the game. So Texas is leading five to nothing. And the game is going to the bottom of the ninth inning. And Bruce Bochy doesn't have to bring in his ace closer or setup man. So he has a young pitcher's last name, LeClerc. And when they showed his pitching line and then the announcers on that game were saying, well, you know, the one problem he has is based on balls. Well, now, uh, Badu was the first hitter for the Tigers. Now, a manager didn't have to tell us this after experience. We kind of knew if you're facing a pitcher that has control problems and your team is down five, you're going to make them throw a strike. You're going to keep taking a pitch. I knew good contact hitters that would make him throw two strikes. But Badu swings at the first pitch. He swings at the second pitch. Now it's 0-2. Well, now I reverse and put myself in the pitcher's shoes. I say, okay, I got a 5 nothing lead. The count's 0-2. I'm going to take one pop here, maybe at the low outside corner. And then if he doesn't go after that, 
Here it is. Hit it if you can. If you can hit five consecutive home runs, good for you. But percentages say you're not going to do that. Well, the next four pitches with the catcher sitting on either corner weren't even close to the strike zone. So now he walks the leadoff hitter. I said, that's enough. It's it's just the approach to the game. Now, he did end up pitching a scoreless inning and the Rangers won it. But it's those little subtle things, basic things that players that have played the game for a long time with all, all the science, they learned that. And and now that just doesn't exist. And I blame management and baseball ops for that, for not having people that could really teach him, teach them how to play to the scoreboard. Uh, you know, when it's five to nothing, I mean, you come in there, you throw as many strikes as you have can. If they hit two home runs, fine. You still win the game five to two. The iron of it, neither neither guy in the mound or at the plate were doing their job, and the, the other one was feeding right into the craziness. It's it's like a riddle wrapped in a puzzle with these guys. Just out of curiosity, what were you what were you planning on watching instead of the game? Uh, the America's Day at the races. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to see my my good friend Bill Parcells had a has a terrific course call a uh, horse called Maple Leaf Mel. And uh, Mel is a lady from uh, Canada that looks after this horse. She's the groom, and it's ma- and she, the horse hadn't been beaten yet. And I said, I just want to check. I didn't know if she was running today or not. She's not running till another couple weeks from now. But yeah, I like to I like to watch the horse races. I'm a big fan too. So you know, for our audience, there, I think it's a great recap of the 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 game you were watching though, with a very simple baseball IQ scenario. And here you have major league guys who are supposed to be the best in the business not able to uh, execute and simple. How, how would have you, how would you have handled that as a pitcher? If let's say, actually let's flip it around. How would it, how would a dugout have handled a hitter going up there with uh, you know, with that deficit, knowing the pitcher was on the mound that didn't throw strikes, what would have been messages sent loud and clear to him? Well, the, the first thing, uh, the first thing, particularly was a young hitter. Hey, make him throw a strike. Take a, I mean, I've known managers that would actually, have the third base coach give you the take sign. But as you got experience in the game, you didn't have to be told that. You knew. And if you did swing at the first pitch when you got back, uh, some of the veterans say, hey, what are you doing? We're down five. We need a base runner. Uh, he ended up doing a walk. But then as from the pitching standpoint, the advice would be, hey, five zip. Trust your stuff. Make them hit it. Throw it over. Challenge them. You know, the the – a lot of pitchers in the Hall of Fame, Robin Roberts, Catfish Hunter, Burt Blylevin, led the league in giving up home runs, Fergie Jenkins, but they were solo home runs. So that that position that the pitcher was in there, that's what's got to be your mindset, that I don't want to make my manager have to go to the bullpen and take me out of the game with a five-run lead. I want to challenge him if they hit a couple home runs, so be it. But see, the reason that doesn't play today is that uh, every hitter for the pitcher, they want to strike out. Every hitter wants to hit it as hard as they can, increase his his bat speed and his – is what do they call the speed off the bat now? Not the launch angle, but exit velocity. Velocity, yeah. yeah. They want to increase that. They pay all that attention to that instead of the, you know, if they gave up a couple home runs and then that works against their war and then their agent, uh, you know, he can't state as good a case for him. So all of those, each individual out 
no matter what the score is, uh, is so important to the pitchers and hitters that they lose sight of what makes common sense in playing the game. And it's crept into coaching them as well and managing them as well, apparently. One one thing, I think I mentioned this early on when we started doing the show, but it came to fruition yesterday. And I I think if, if this kid had been healthy earlier, I don't think they would have signed Carlos Correa, but Royce Lewis had quite a uh, great day yesterday. You know, this kid is solid as could be not only as a player, but as a person. And he had the bad luck of having two, ACL operations that kept him from playing. Well, now yesterday was a year to the day when he had had his second injury and he hits a home run in his first at bat. He knocks in another run. Uh, I I think you're going to continue to hear from Royce Lewis and he has to play third base now because the twins have, uh, have invested a lot of money in Correa, but he was going to be their shortstop of the future when he was drafted. I, th- I think it's probably six years ago, five, six years ago now that he was drafted and suffered these injuries. But uh, uh, I think you'll hear a lot from him. He was very well thought of it as a drafted player. And obviously COVID and the two injuries held him back. As you as you watched him come through, I don't know if you got a chance to see much of him because of the injuries, but prior to coming up and having the success, what were your thoughts on him as a minor leaguer? Well, I, I heard about it from Paul Molitor. There's, there's a couple more kids, and I can't think of their names right now, but, you know, Paul Molitor's in spring training. He's another one of those guys they don't they don't ask him a lot or talk, but he watches them. <laughs> He's the one that said to me, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, he said, boy, if this Royce Lewis stays healthy, he's going to be something. And uh, my partner, Dick Bramer, who does the game on TV, has said the same thing. So those are the things that I heard about. I, I didn't actually – See, I, I don't think I've ever seen Royce Lewis play a game in person. Where he got the second East ACL injury, and I think the Twins now uh, wish they hadn't done that. But uh, they uh, Buxton Buxton was injured, I think, unavailable, and of course Correa's at shortstop. So they put Royce Lewis out in center field, no. and he'd never been there before. So he runs back on a fly ball, gets turned around or whatever, and he ends up tearing his ACL. Uh, and, and and that's sad that they did that to him. But uh, he's back in the infield now where he belongs. Yeah, it's happened to a lot of guys of that same draft generation where they've gotten lost because of the – again, it's an, it's an analytics thing where they just move these guys around as if positions don't matter. And talking to a position player here, you know, I, I play anywhere to play. Sure. Pick me at second base. That's my comfort zone. That's where I, I see, feel, uh, you know, and, and that's when guys do get hurt. When, when they have to move, you know, you can't go from second to third. It's not as easy as people think. It's a, now, now you being an infielder. Now, one of the, one of the great stories in the 1968 world series is when Mickey Stanley, who was a very good center fielder for the Tigers came in and played shortstop, having never played it before in all seven games of the 68 world series. Now I'd always heard that it's easy to go from in to out or easier but it's harder to go from outfield to infield because, you know, the ball's getting at you quicker. Uh, third base from shortstop, the ball's getting on you quicker. Those are the kind of adjustments you're talking about. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's, it's even in the middle. People think just because two guys play in the middle, shortstop to second base, it's it's that you can easily move from short to second. And they always think of converting that guy short to second. I think it's physically easier to convert from second to short because at second base, everything's backwards. 
I mean, the, the runners, the, your runners coming from behind you and that play at second base, your movements are all across your body for the most part. Or shortstop, you can kind of keep everything in front of you. And not, not that it's not a thinking position, but it's, you know, I loved moving over to shortstop. I was like, poof, it was almost like a mental day off. I just got to be an athlete. And everything was moving toward my out at first base where second base, everything I did was moving away from it. Um, but uh, yeah, going from outfield to infield, I played a little outfield too. I got to run around center field and I, I enjoyed it. Um, and I felt it was the further I moved away from second base, the better hitter I became, ironically. I don't know if that was mental or not, but... Yeah. Yeah, I can see your I can see your point about uh, about uh, playing the infield because, like you said, at shortstop uh, you're always going toward first base, second base. You might be heading out towards center field to backhand it, and then you got to throw against your body. That's why, as a pitching drill, uh, I always like to go to shortstop. Uh, usually, it was Larry Boa, Ozzie Smith pregame drills. I'd go out and take ground balls at second base. And throw them to first because that hop, step, and throw, my momentum and my body is going toward first base just as if I were on the mound that was going toward home plate. And I always thought that was a great uh, exercise for a pitcher to find his his rhythm and his arm slot. You know, if you look at some infielders, Greg Nettles was a great infielder for the for the Yankees. He threw almost sidearm to third base. You know, he he sling it almost from down under, and it would just kind of go over there like it was a, you know, like you were lobbing it, but he'd always get it to the first baseman in time. And then you have other guys like Mike Schmidt who would field it, take a couple hops and then hesitate and then he'd shoot it over there because he had a strong arm. But all your momentum is going toward first base and at second base, that's not always the case, as you pointed out. Yeah. I've got a throwing question for you. Um, And it goes pitching to infielders. I see pitchers do a better job of this as opposed to infielders um, and even outfielders. But the the uh, the core, or you know, when you're when you're about to throw, I see a lot of infielders when they make throwing errors. Or nowadays, when 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 pitchers are missing their spots, they lose that collapse or that flex with the with the torso over the front leg. Um, where if you're fine, over an audio show only, but as you're moving your body towards your target, that collapse of your upper body over that front leg to I mean, that's your strong point right there outside of your legs, where when you don't collapse over it, it's more about arm than it is about midsection. Um, I don't know if I'm clearly. Yeah, I, I, I get exactly what you're saying. When I got a lesson from Warren Spahn early on, he, he said pitching to him was like from the belt buckle up. He said, of course, the mound gives you an opportunity to use gravity because there's a slope there. So. You're pitching where your upper body is pitching down or is going downhill. And you and I know our our good friend, James Matthews, who will be coming over from New Zealand soon. When I first saw James, I was so impressed with his motion as a nine-year-old. And he had played some cricket. And, you know, cricket bowlers, they get a running start and then they get over that front side. And uh, that's lacking when you see pitchers today. They throw it and they recoil. And they're either pointed toward first base or third base. Uh, and they're, I mean, that creates some power for them, I guess, but they're never in position to field the ball. And more importantly for that, I don't think you can command your pitches uh, as well. What, what we used to do in pitching practice is to get the pitchers to wind up and throw a ball to home plate. And then I had a cloth ball. It was called the Incredible and a Fungo. 
And right after the pitch hit the catcher's glove, I would, with that fungo, hit a line drive back at him. So when they got done throwing the pitch, they had to be ready for a ball to be hit back at them. Uh, doesn't exist anymore. They don't smart. do that. That's smart. It teaches them to read and react and, and be ready because any sport, but talk baseball specifically, very rarely do you get beat on the first movement. There's always multiple movements that happen um, that, that cause a problem, whether it's a one-on-one movement or something like you're saying, where it's a, a pitch followed by a hit. And if you can't play that second reaction, you're, you're, yeah. you're not going to have success, but you could get hurt um, as well. I see that in catchers too. And, and I don't know if you see the same thing, if you saw it as a, as a broadcaster or see it now as, a, as someone just watching the game. Catchers, when they're coming up out of their pop, it's been lost. Um, that hinge that we're talking about coming over that front leg to gain that extra power and direction on the baseball where they're standing straight up and down, chest flat to their target, using mostly arms. And I'm like, wow, what, all that power wasted. Am, am I just poking at something or do you, do you ever see that as well? No, I, I think, you know, with, with all sports, I'm sure it's this way, but particularly in baseball for infielders, pitchers, catchers, is it's all about the footwork. If you watch an infielder make a good play, and I'm sure you've made a ton of them, a ground ball is coming your way, and all of a sudden you get your footwork in such a way that you have balance and you can pick up the ball and throw it. Now, when an infielder makes an error, invariably he didn't have his he, he didn't have his footwork synced up with that little hop step and a jump, and as a result, he had to throw it off balance. And unless he had an extraordinary strong arm he probably wasn't good to get the runner and that same thing is true for a pitcher that that footwork creates your rhythm and your and your momentum going toward home plate to be able to repeat your delivery and uh and throw strikes and that that's the key to the pitching delivery uh give you a quick side story about golf uh when they with all the video that you can learn from if you looked at the video, if these experts in golf looked at video of Tiger Woods putting and you didn't know it was Tiger Woods, they'd say mechanically, that is not the way you'd teach anybody to putt. But his repeatability over his career was 97.5%. So even though your motion may not be perfect, if it's repeatable and you can throw the ball where you want, that's all you have to have it. I think sometimes with the with the scientific approach, they're trying to have everybody have perfect mechanics like a Tom Seaver, and that's not going to happen. But the main thing is, as a pitcher, uh, to be able to use the footwork in your body, that that motion, you can repeat it time after time. Yeah. No, I, I like that point that you make. Um on the show, it's in, as you mentioned with your feet. Your feet put you in a position to have success, um, whether you're in the field on the mound. And I, I marvel at, and you know, you mentioned golf. It's the same in, in in all sports, basketball. Regardless of what you're playing or what position you're playing, what sport, you're on your feet 100 percent of the time. And yeah. why if people don't focus on that more is beyond me with it. But uh, I've got this is a selfish question. I'm going to ask you. I probably ask a few every show anyway, and I just don't. I don't, I don't uh, clarify it as that, but when, when you're visiting the hall of fame, obviously you have a bust in the hall of fame. Um, I know I would look at mine and I would go check it out and, and be there. Uh, two questions, I guess. Number one, who, who is your bust by? Like who's your, who's your neighbor in the hall of fame? And then outside of that, that 
entry video that you mentioned, that's, that's a great motivational piece, should be for baseball. What's your must-sees when you go into the Hall of Fame? Well, the, the, the plaque, it goes as the, as the classes, you know, every year you get more and more, you know, inductees. And so, like, I was, uh, I was next to my teammate, uh, Tony Oliva. I think Big Poppy was right above me. I think Derek was maybe a row above me, two over. Uh, and then I made sure that I went to, as soon as I got, got there, I've done this before, I go to the plaque of Lefty Grove, who's back several sections because he was inducted in 1947, and that was my dad's uh, favorite player. So, yeah, I, I kind of look at the plaques, but I like, uh, you know, we're fortunate when we get a, a private tour as you go downstairs uh, with the white glove tour and you hold the bat that Babe Ruth used. Or, uh, you know, you see, I was having fun with the curator down there that he was talking about the, the model on the knob of the bat on the end. And he mentioned, uh, I think it was uh, M159. I said, yeah, it's Musial. And then the number represents he is the 159th player that used that model bat him. And then I said, I'll bet that's why Mel Ott had a low number because the Mel Ott bat, who was a great hitter back probably in the 20s, was 016, and it was a big bottle bat. So you get to handle those different uh, bats and, uh, you know, see some of the – even the uniforms. I mean, it's just full of uh, – of artifacts that have all been donated to the uh, Hall of Fame of, uh, you know, equipment and uniforms that uh, players used. When you look at some of the gloves that they use, you say, how in the world, <laughs> how in the world they even play? But uh, yeah, I, I enjoy that experience. And I think everybody comes away saying, uh, my, I know my nephew's grandkids, they just love that 17 minute uh, introductory video in the, in the uh, theater, which shows, you know, the talents of today's players and, and what they do on the field. It makes you want to just go right outside and play baseball. Yeah, it does. And that that's what makes me, I think, a little bit angry, especially coming off Memorial Day where we, we celebrate our, our armed forces. And, you know, it's it's a it's a day of Americana. And baseball has been entrenched in America for centuries. And uh, we, we're reaching a point now where people are almost pushing that away as part of our identity. And, uh uh, I'm not willing to let it go, and that's I think well, that's part of why we do the show here as well. Yeah. You know, it'll it'll never happen, Dave. But in a you mentioned the holidays in a perfect world with all the sports today, we now are going to finally get to the uh, NHL finals and the NBA finals, and it's Memorial Day. In a in a perfect world, uh, baseball would have would stand out more to the American fan if it started on Memorial Day and ended on Labor Day. Yeah. And then you had the playoffs in September, but now it's spread out so far that people don't even really pay serious attention other than us avid baseball people until it comes to playoff time. Yeah. I, I do have one fan question for you, and I, I almost forgot, and I apologize to, to Dave who uh, who sent this to me. Uh, you had a chance to watch uh, Luis Arias. I'm sorry. Arias, yeah. uh, tremendous hitter. Uh, old old school type puts the bat on the ball, moves it around. Uh, he wanted to know if, if if you saw or if you saw any similarities in his approach to the plate, albeit mechanical or mental, to that of Rod Carew. No question. We mentioned it. Uh, we mentioned it as soon as uh, he came up because he 
He moves around the box like Rod. I mean, Rod was a man of a thousand different stances, moved all over the place, hit the ball to all fields. And uh, yeah, Luis, uh, gosh, he's a, he's a fine young man. He's a great young man. It gives you an idea of, of what's important and how teams are constructing their team. Because here they trade a batting champion for Joey Gallo, who was a power hitter, but he's going to strike out 200 times here. He's a good fielder. So they, they went for power and they gave up a, a batting champion. I think he's still leading the league in hitting, isn't he? He's close. Yeah, they were talking early on about him being the next 400 hitter. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah he, he reminded us immediately when he came up. It's almost when Alfonso Soriano came up with the Yankees. And I said, man, this is, I haven't seen wrists like this since Hank Aaron. You know, he just had that Hank Aaron look about him with those quick wrists. Yeah. But, he was, uh, um, yeah. I'm glad Luis uh, is doing well. He's, uh, he loves the game and, and uh, respects the game. I'm glad to see him doing well, but yes, he does. Uh, he does look like Rodney. Yeah. Well, we started off with Yogi today. Um, anything that we missed or any parting shots you want to leave the audience with? We've kept you over an hour. Today. No, I, I want to make sure that uh, that we brought up Royce Lewis, that the Twins just called him up. And I think it's going to be interesting if, uh, you know, Correa is not doing well at all at the plate. Uh, they have a lot of money invested in him. But uh, I don't know where they look at this with uh, with where a guy plays and who he plays with. But, you know, when Carlos was with Houston, he had Springer, Altuve, Bregman, you know, he had, a, he had a supporting cast, and now, you know, he's asked to be the man. And, uh, you know, sometimes that's difficult for a guy, and uh, I'm sure he's still playing well in the field, but he's he's not hitting well uh, at all right now. So uh, I think he has an opt-out, I'm not sure, but uh, I think eventually uh, the Twins are going to want Royce Lewis at shortstop. Yeah, he, he last I think the last go around he tried to sign one of those mega deals and didn't work out and and yeah. back to the Twins. So he's got a he's got a short term I guess what they call a pillow contract to to uh, soften the blow and and get him to the next big one. But to get the big one, he's got to produce. I don't care who his agent is. But uh, yeah, I, I like Royce Lewis. Well, I'm glad you brought him up. He was a fine young talent coming through unfortunate injuries, but. Um, if the Twins don't fall into that sunk cost fallacy where they they spend a lot of money, so they got to try to make it work to prove that they did right. Yeah. The one we're talking about with all these great young stars in baseball now. So, but, uh, well, Jim, we're glad to have you back. I, I'm, it sounds like you had a great time again at Cooperstown and, and, uh, you know, look forward to having our conversation next week as well. Um, but, uh, to our, our audience here, 18,300 subscribers, we talked a lot about getting baseball back with pitching. So hopefully all of you reach your children's day and give them the advice that Jim Cott gave you guys today. Let's start at one kid at a time. But as you're doing that, make sure you download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, review. Let's beat the analytics of the podcast world like we do and we're trying to do in baseball. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher is our streaming devices. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Hit me up on Facebook. I get back to everybody privately and, and I'll get back to one person publicly every day. 72 countries. So. Jeremy Guthrie wants to get out there. Let's 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 have you guys pour in the emails. We'll, we'll send them all the way around the globe. We'll follow them there, Jim. We'll have them do a little blog for us. And uh, all we're trying to do is build a better baseball IQ. And our audience here, hopefully we, we delivered what you asked for. You asked us to help you guys embrace uncomfortable truths of baseball. I think we did that today. And because, as you know, we have no time for any of the uncomfortable lies. And Jim Cott, thanks so much for your show today. Hall of Famer in every sense of the world. Uh, fantastic job. And we look forward to next week. 
Okay, Dave, always enjoy it. Down the winds, trying hard.